Welcome to a powerful episode of the Free Your Energy podcast. My guest today, Sherry Salata, a powerful woman that we can all learn from. In this episode, we talked about the power of friendship and connection as we listen to her tell us about her 30-year friendship with her best friend. We talked about the beautiful note and how life offers you no's, and those no's can turn into yeses, successes, opportunity. She was an executive producer of The Oprah Show, ran the show. We talked about how she went from Illinois to Iowa to Oprah. And now, most importantly, we talk about the journey she's on now, living her truest life. I hope you enjoy this beautiful conversation, this genuine conversation with my friend, Sherry Salata. Free your energy. Welcome, Sherry. Hi, Sly. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you. I am actually honored that we met. Uh, it's, it was uh, interesting where we met uh, through a potential partnership, and I'm, I'm interested to uh, explore that partnership with you. And one of the main reasons I wanted to bring you on the Free Your Energy podcast is to really just learn more about you and your story. You know, I wanted to go a little deeper than you know what your content um has represented right i was listening to your podcast who which is a podcast you host with your best friend can you tell us a little bit about yeah. your podcast oh my goodness it's so crazy so you know i i spent my whole life in tv my whole life well for most of it most of my life in tv and um you know ultimately ran one of the greatest shows that have ever been produced the oprah winfrey show um, but a few years ago, uh, a, a very wise friend, a literary agent who was um, getting ready to, to help me take a book out, um, said, you and Nancy should do a podcast. And so this is a few years ago, Sly, so don't, don't, don't um, think too badly of me, but I was a little snobby. I was kind of like, who listens to those? Really? <laughs> and um, boy, have I been have I been corrected because, you know, now it's been three years. We're at about 125 episodes, about two and a half million downloads. And it, it turns out to be one of the great joys uh, that I've ever worked on. And I've worked on some good stuff, but uh, doing a podcast is great. Wow. So there's there's so much about your life that I want to unpack, but let's just stay present on the podcast situation. And okay. uh, then we could maybe go back and, and kind of see the trajectory of how we got there. Okay. So with your, your podcast, it's your best friend of 30 years. I listened to the story where uh, you were working with her husband and <laughs> he, brought you, he brought you home to his home with his wife at the time and was basically pitching the friendship of you and your best friend to his wife. Yes. Uh, and there was some nervousness there. I, I had a blast listening to that episode. Oh, uh, my gosh. Talking about how you guys met. So can you just take me back to the initial feelings you had 
uh, initial thoughts you had of when you met her, uh, maybe that day or maybe the night before, or even the day after, just kind of that little time period. Absolutely. So, so I was in advertising at the time. I was a producer of television commercials, and um, this is this is Nancy, my my dear friend Nancy Hala. This is her former husband now, um, but at the time they were newlyweds. And he was an art director. We worked at the same ad agency. And we were coming home from a big client meeting in uh, way out west of the city of Chicago. So we were coming home from a big client meeting. And he goes, hey, why don't you come over? It was probably like maybe 3, 30, 4 o'clock. And we didn't want to go back to the office. And he goes, just come on over. You know, we'll have some cocktails. I'll make some food. You know, I really want you to meet my wife. I think you guys would really like each other. And I was like, eh, I don't know, you know, maybe it'd be great if I met her before I just show up at her house when she comes home from work and I'm sitting there and sure enough, and he was insistent. And the whole time I was completely uncomfortable and he's giving me a tour of the house and he's like, here's our master bedroom. I'm like, thank you. And let's go back downstairs. And I'm sitting at the table having a cocktail. He's making food. She comes home from work. And, you know, now it's like five o'clock and I'm like, oh, brother, this is so uncomfortable. And, she, and you know, she comes walking and she goes, oh, hi, <laughs> like surprise. And, you know, in very short order, I must say, I mean, in very short order, it must have been like 10, 15 minutes into our conversation. We, we became very fast friends. Like it was it was instant. It was fast friends. I love Bruce Springsteen. I love Bruce Springsteen kind of moment. And, um, you know, very shortly after that, we founded our two woman book club and, and she and I would go to the independent bookstore in old town in Chicago, Barbara's bookstore. It was, it was just a hop, skip and a jump from, from my condo. And we would go in there and we would, you know, when writers would come to do their readings and book signings and, oh my gosh, we had so much fun with that, but we didn't have any other members. It was just the two of us. And uh, the marriage didn't last, but our friendship did. Wow. So with your friendship, and, and let me tell you why I'm exploring, why I feel like this is an important thing to talk about. I feel like a lot of people overthink their friendships or undervalue uh, their friendships. And when I say a lot of people, what I'm referring to is the people specifically in my age bracket, uh, 20, 20, 30 year olds. I feel like we have become, you know, very obsessed with chasing our degrees and and work and, um, you know, with social media, there's this, you know, chasing this, this image, I feel like of social media. Um, and obviously I feel like everybody falls into like a different bucket. And one of the things that I wanted to do in the free your energy book was give people ideas and stories and and things they can look for, for friendship, because I just feel like for my own journey, like friendship saved my life. Yeah. There was times where I could not count on certain family members to be there for me, uh, to save me, to help me, to love me. And it was friends who literally saved my life. Um, And when I look at you and I see that you have a 30 year friendship with someone who uh, I believe you guys use the term like soul partnership, spiritual partnership, I think is yeah. what you guys are saying. Like, I just want to want to learn from that. So what's something that that thrive, you know, how you guys were able to thrive for 30 years? Like, right. what what can we take from your friendship? 
Well, and we had very different lives. Nancy was a single mom, a freelance writer, raising two little children by herself. And I um, had no children. I wasn't married. And I had this, you know, this, this career that, you know, became very all consuming for me. So we had very different lives. Um, you know, I, I, I do have a lot to say about friendship. And I think, you know, when you are 20 and 30, start to use the word family, F-R-A-M-I-L-Y, because really what you're doing is you're, you're pulling together, you know, and I love family. I have a great family. I have, you know, uh, 11 first cousins, um, you know, their kids are I'm close to everybody. We gather, I, I'm, my heart beats huge for them. And at the same time, what, what we also have to do is be, begin to create our little family. It might be um, like a cousin, you know, or a sibling, plus uh, a high school friend, plus a friend you meet in your 20s. And you know, what I've come to see is I agree with you 100%. I think friendship, that is the, those are the pillars of your life, those friendships, those relationships. That's where you really practice so much intimacy and conflict resolution and you, and you triumph and you fail over all those kinds of things. The most important thing I want to say is that also know that not every friendship is meant to last forever. Not every friendship is meant to last forever. And, you know, that's the thing you have to check in with yourself about. You know, what kind of friendships do I want? I know what that answer is for me. I want to be uplifted. I want to have conversations about things I care about. I don't want to grouse and complain and gossip anymore. And maybe I wanted to do that in my 20s. Maybe I wanted to do some of that in my 30s. Not anymore. So that completely changes the landscape in terms of who is drawn to me. Do you think, so with that, that connection that you have with your best friend, you met her in your later twenties. Is that accurate? Yeah. Late twenties. So, yep. Okay. So how do we, how do we talk to the person who is 25 and under who may be listening and maybe they struck out a few times with friendships or connections or even, you know, partnerships, romantic partnerships, and maybe they're in a hurt place or a bitter place, a jaded place where they just, right. they're just like, you know what? I don't need anybody. It's just me. I got me. And I think there's, you know, strength there where you, you can say that to yourself. But ultimately, we know. We know human beings need connection. We know we need partnership. We know it. Yeah. So what what do you say to that person who, and, and, and it doesn't have to be restricted to that age, but, right. you know, what do you say to that person who is just, Ah, it's just me and that's all I need. What do you say to them? Well, you know, here's an interesting thing I've observed um, when, when I've, I've done some hanging out with, with um, some younger generations. And what, what I see is, you know, sometimes we don't feel good about ourselves. So we have to um, kind of take down others. And the, the, the real secret to, you know, to staying um, close to somebody is to, you know, continually reminding yourself about what's great about it. I call it the love list. You know, once, once we start picking somebody apart or, you know, projecting our own insecurities onto somebody else, like, like um, 
I don't trust that person. Maybe I don't trust that person because I'm, I have not developed a real sense of trustworthiness for myself. You know, there, there are a lot of complexities that go on, but the truth is we all shine when somebody sees our shininess. And so you, you kind of got to decide not what friendship is going to do for you, but what are you going to do for friendship? Are you going to see the shiny side of people? Are you going to be the one when they stand in front of you, you just reflect back to them their goodness and, and their fabulous qualities, you know, and, and, and their spirit. Are you going to, are you going to do the namaste? Like, like see the universal force within them. Are you going to see their, their humor and their beauty, you know, and their, and their wisdom and their generosity. Are you going to see those qualities in them? And when you see those qualities, they get reflected back to you. So it sounds like a lot of what what you're saying is stop looking for everything you're going to get out of it and start looking at what you're going to give to it. Because what you're going to give is going to be reflective of the result. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me on this, but I've been circling around, you know, um, a, a really, really wise wisdom keeper asked a question about life's purpose. And, you know, really, I've been circling around uh, that drain for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I, I know what I want my life's purpose to be. I want to be an illuminator. I want to be something with light, you know, something with light for myself, you know, and for you know, the, the, the people who, who crossed my path and I'm not always successful at it. And when I'm not, it's because I'm not being light for myself, but you know, that's kind of the way, like really to look at friendship, like what are the qualities of a great friend, trustworthy, loyal, an uplifter, um, a support system, you know, a person who sees the best in you, you've got to kind of start training yourself to become that friend that you want. That's deep. Did you and your best friend ever have a falling out or years where you did not speak? I have had other very close friends. I've had circles of close friends and yeah, for sure. For sure, there's there there are things that come up that feel like they can't be gotten through. Um, sometimes a break is really nice, just to be on a break for a while, um, because that's something that this is different than than a marriage. <laughs> you know, once you take a break, it's it's usually a a, a break break. Um, and also sometimes when you continue to grow, and other people don't grow with you. You got to, you got to open your, unclasp your hands and let things go, you know? And, and for years and years and years, I thought I have all the friends I'm ever going to need. I mean, now I, 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 I say that statement and I see it's just so unconscious, that kind of thinking. I have all the friends I'm, I'm ever going to need. And I, I, I took some pride in that. I, I can't even imagine why. Um, but I didn't see myself as going out in the world and being open to friendship. And maybe it was because, you know, because of my job and where I worked that people always wanted something from me. Like, oh, can I give you my script? Can I, you know, so I I was a little shut down. I had a little bit of a barrier up and that probably contributed to that, to that posture that I would take. But 
you know, um, several years ago, I started to shift that. And oh my gosh, how my life has changed. And I have no, nobody needs to be the right age. You know, I, now I have these amazing friendships with people of all ages, way younger than me, some a little bit older than me, um, you know, different walks of life, different backgrounds, different, you know, lots of differences that we get together and chew on. And it's made my life so much richer. I was listening to one of your podcast episodes and you had made a friend on Twitter and she was living overseas. I think you guys were getting on calls every like Saturday morning. Yeah. You remember that story? Yes. So what is it about you um, that has you that way where you were able to connect with someone on Twitter just through tweets, you know, and just through the message of her tweets. And then you guys even developed a friendship. Like, what is it about you that sparks that? Like, how does that even, how does that even happen? That's interesting. Well, I mean, in that particular example, that is um, at my power talk and her name is Gordana Birnot. And she lives in, is she living in Sweden right now? I think uh, she was thinking about, they were thinking about moving to Krakow. Um, she, uh, you know, I, I just started, yes, I saw her tweets and her tweets are their little, their little haikus, their little daily messages of inspiration. And I thought, wow, this is really powerful. What a powerful use of this platform. Cause at the time you only could do so many characters and, you know, like every, you know, it, it wasn't like I, on Twitter, I found like content that uplifted me and made me think about my connection to all there is and, you know, uh, like that, but hers did. And then she started following me and then we started having direct messages. And I think she asked me, would you do a Skype with me? And I'm like, yeah. And we just, we just started having conversations about, um, you know, you know, it's the only conversation I want to have. That's the truth anymore. You know, I have, I have changed so much, you know, over many, many years. Uh, it's the only thing I want to talk about is growth, upliftment, up-leveling, what's next, energy, vibration, how we, how we can co-create our lives, how we're doing it all the time, whether we know it or not, and how we can wake up from unconsciousness and, and to become the conscious people that really live the joy ride. So I definitely understand and align with what you're saying. And uh, it's very high vibrational to me. But but my question is, were you always this way? Can you can you take us back to... Was I always of, this way? Yeah. Were you always this way? Like, what was your childhood mm -hmm. like? What were some of the influences you had when you were, let's just say, between five and 10 years old? Where were you at? And yeah. What were, what were some of those stories? Um... Well, I mean, I grew up in Waukegan, Illinois. Uh, we had lived in Hawaii. Um, we had my dad was in the Navy. We had lived in Washington D.C. I was born in Georgia, um, but I, I grew up in Hawaii, uh, in Waukegan, Illinois, where all my family, you know, all my parents, cousins, everybody, and um, we were a Catholic family. Uh, my mom converted from Methodism to, which is you know an interesting topic on this Easter Sunday. Um, and so I was raised Catholic and, um, you know, there, there was always, um, 
a seeking quality to my spiritual life. I was always like, why can only men, you know, get up there and tell us how to live our lives? I I had a little bit of that going on. Um, And I would say what broke me open, where I really started to see the world as that there were more dimensions to this experience than I, than, than, than me just getting up and, you know, walking through life, that there was, that there was something more mystical and, and, and really magical happening. And I think it was one, you know, maybe it was Marianne Williamson's return to love. Um, you know, um, maybe it was, you know, like I started getting exposed to writings and teachings that were more about energy and more about that, that we have the power within us to really design and, and create our lives. And that's when I started getting really excited about this life experience. And, and you know, there's no question that my greatest influence kind of spiritually and emotionally were, you know, all those years I spent at the Oprah show. I mean, it, it opened up, you know, doors to understanding that, that I, I hadn't found yet. So with the, the Oprah show, I don't want to go there yet because I want to, I want to lead up to that. Okay. Well, being in Waukegan, just so you know, I went to Palatine High School in Palatine. Oh, Palatine. Yeah. So we didn't grow up too far from each other. Um, what was Waukegan like in high school and where did you go to high school? I went to Carmel High School, Carmel Catholic High School in Mundelein, Illinois. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know, like, uh-uh, I'm, I, I'm really going to tell you, I'm not sure I was a particularly happy child. I had like a fine life. My, my parents loved me. I didn't, you know, like my lunch was made. Somebody always picked me up and dropped me off. And, you know, I, I, I didn't have that. My, my basic needs were, were super duper met, but I don't know. I, I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's kind of a, and, and maybe it's women of my generations. So it's a bit of a girl curve is that you feel like until you're maybe in sixth grade that you rule the world, you feel your power, your creativity, your passion, your, um, your, um, your, you feel yourself. And then there's something that happens and happens to me and to many girls who, you know, are, are kind of in my age group that in sixth grade, it was all of a sudden things changed, you know, like it was, like being that, being your full, complete self wasn't really welcomed, you know, and I could feel, I could feel my mom in particular trying to wrestle me to the ground to get me to behave like a lady and, you know, like it was, it was, it was less joyful for sure. And then, and then certainly like in junior high, like there, there's, there was, a there was a, um, sense of like watching people, you know, being bullied and, um, th- there was something that made me sad. So I, I, I'm not so sure in those years when I, even when I think back, I don't think of myself as particularly happy, you know, I, and, and I think, um, you know, high school was, um, 
more interesting, it was, you know, I was with kids from all over Northern Illinois because you would come from your individual towns to go to a Catholic high school. You weren't all from the same town necessarily. And that was, you know, I got a great education. It was a good experience. Um, When I hit my stride, honestly, was when I went to college. That's when I felt like, oh, okay, this feels good. This feels like I can begin to like collect all the parts of myself that and, and be my confident, authentic self. And that was, I went to the University of Iowa and Iowa City. The Hawkeyes, right? Hawkeyes, go Hawkeyes. Hawkeyes. And that's when I started to feel, because there were so many different kinds of kids. And then you just, you just, you just were yourself. I relate to that. Uh, being in high school, I felt like I had a lot of compressed feelings and a lot of compressed uh ideas that were just held back. And what I feel like the primary source of holding me back was um, high school was a very like tumultuous time for me. It was a lot of, a lot of pain going on. Uh, my parents were splitting and divorcing and mm-hmm. I had a younger brother and sister. So at that time, just being pulled apart from my brother and sister who were my best friends. And then, my, you know, seeing my parents argue, um, it made high school a very unenjoyable time. Uh, I pretty much hated it. For me also, there was uh, in high school, that's when I first dealt with racism. That's when I first started dealing with, as a, as a guy, you know, you start dealing with, you mentioned people bullying. Is That's when guys start trying to fight each other and wrestle and get real, t- you know, because your muscles start coming in. Mm. So for me, my high school period was a lot of self-reflecting, but I had nowhere to... I didn't have any wisdom coming in that could help me understand my emotions or what I was going through. And I totally relate to you in the fact that when I got to college, I felt a lot more free. I feel like I was more free because I was away from one of the sources of my pain, which was being at home. Yeah. And then I was also out of the confines of the high school hallways, which it didn't really seem to produce happiness. It, it was like, it just felt like constant stress. So what do you think was different in college for you, like schematically, that kind of helped you feel a little more free and help you hit your stride versus what you had going on in high school? Well, I mean, uh, the, uh, you know, I think you said it perfectly. I mean, one of the things is, you know, my mother, who, who who's not on this earth anymore, um, but I, I can see now that she was you know, she had so many insecurities herself that it wasn't like I could come home from a day at school and say, oh gosh, mom, I just don't feel good about myself. You know, I felt weird. I raised my hand. I don't think people like people who are smart. You know, if I would have expressed sadness or a sense of, um, a sense of disruption or, and not, she'd be like, are you not fitting in with the kids? Which, which, you know, I knew what the answer would be. I knew what she would say. So exactly. I just had to bottle everything up. Like there was not going to be, um, nobody was going to put their arms around me and say, you are fabulous just like you are. She would be worried that she would have to find a way to, to correct me. So, and that was about her. It wasn't about me. Um, and so when I, when I moved to Iowa City, oh, I couldn't, my parents couldn't leave fast enough. I was like, see ya. 
thanks. <laughs> um, they're like, should we go out to? No, go ahead, go on home. Um, I just felt the freedom of it. It was structured, you know. I had to live in a certain place. I had to report for duty and do and do to classes, but there was a, a freedom to it that um, that I really reveled in. And that's where I, you know, I could be like, okay, there's a million different people here and everybody, you know, everybody, it was a more mature landscape. You know, people were glad to meet you. That's definitely true. I know, I know college, like the college archetype is that people are immature, but if you're comparing it to high school, (laughs) they're definitely way more mature, you know? Oh yeah. And everybody kind of gets to set down their old labels or their old, you know, what whatever luggage they had picked up through grade school and high school, they just got to set that down and show up and be who they really wanted to be. Or at the least the opportunity to do it. Exactly. I totally so I'll tell you something. I'm working on my novel, okay? And this for me as a as a writer, this is one of the biggest struggles that I've had in my writing career. And the reason why is and it totally connects to what you're just saying and that's why i want to tell you is the reason why i struggle with it is because there's probably some fear that my stories are going to be quote unquote not as good as what my other books have been because my other books have really helped and you know thousands of people and have really helped people and i i live solely off of you know my work um over the last eight years uh, about to be nine years and and so when you have quote unquote, success in a pillar for nine years. And then you're trying to do something that's kind of the same, but to you is totally different. There's like this, uh, I don't, I don't know. But one of the things that I realized is literally exactly what you said. Okay. So I'm writing, um, a story. It's a romance story, a love story about these two characters who they literally just got done with college and they're now in these this new beginning phase. And so what I'm doing is allowing this book to be a new beginning phase for me, like Sylvester, the human. But then I'm creating these two people who have to explore new beginnings. And then they have to like find themselves after college and find their paths of who they're going to become. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. So That's I just good. totally just connect to what you were saying. And I think that's probably a great segue for us to just talk about when you got out of Iowa, you know, what, what happened next in your life? Where did, where did you go? What were you thinking? What were some of your victories, losses? Like talk to us about that time period right after college. Oh my God, Sylvester, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. I mean, when I go and speak to young people, especially new college graduates, I go, okay, I'm your cautionary tale. Um, I had done none of, you know, all the tools that a college provides about, you know, how to get your first job, the pre-interviews, the, all that I'd skipped all that. I was really, I was really having too much fun that last year. And, um, so I just on a lark was like, well, I don't want to live in Chicago. I've already lived there in that area. I'm just going to move to Dallas, Texas. So I moved to Dallas, Texas with about, I, I, my parents thought I had like $300. I probably had 50 or 75 because I had spent, you know, a lot of my graduation money. And I stayed with a a friend from high school and then a friend from college, a guy uh, would let me use his car, his old Cutlass that was like just about ready for the junkyard. And, you know, and of course, 
everybody had already gotten all the entry-level jobs. So I ended up typing in a typing pool. And I was not a good typist. But so I was typing in a typing pool. And I just went on for the next several years. Oh, my gosh. Then I was an assistant toy store manager at a big fancy toy store. Then I was a manager at a big cheap toy store, you know, where everything made you sneeze. Then somebody was like, oh, I know somebody who is a supervisor at 7-Eleven. That would be a great company for you. And they, they were headquartered in, in Texas, in, in Dallas. And so I started their training program. Well, the training program, I had to learn how to run a 7-Eleven store. So for eight months, the most grueling eight months of my life, I basically had no sleep. <laughs> you know, if, if people didn't show up for work, you had to, as the manager, quote unquote, you had to work. Everybody in line to buy your products, all your customers, for the most part, looked down their nose at you. It was terrible. Um, and then I got promoted from there and I had six, seven stores reporting to me directly and I would drive around and, and, and do that. And so finally, just about as they were going to promote me to corporate, I say this to say, you can see that I didn't know what I was doing. Like I, I didn't have a dream. I, all I wanted was a, a steady paycheck with some growth and opportunity. Where am I going to retire I wanted to get to the end of the story. I wanted it to be wrapped up. Where am I going to retire? How much am I going to make? What's the title going to be on my business card? And when they went to promote me finally to the the, the crystal mirrored glass tower in Dallas, I burst into tears and I said, nope, I'm going back to Chicago with my tail between my legs and I'm going to rethink this because none of this is making me happy. And so I would say there was a huge chunk there where misery was my compass. Like, wow. I, you know, it'd be like, I, I wouldn't leave a thing, even when I knew it wasn't right until I was miserable. And when I couldn't get out of bed, I'd make a change. So I wasn't like, I wasn't excitedly crafting, you know, my life. I was just desperately trying to like get to the end of the story. And the truth is, it's the journey. That's the joy ride. So I, I did. I was 27 years old. I had all these little bitty 401ks that amounted to nothing. You know, I had finally accumulated some benefits and, and I gave it all up. And I moved into my parents' basement with my dog, Addie Lou. And I started over. I started over and I, I ultimately got a big break. Um, and and got a, a secretarial job, that's what it was called at the time, at an ad agency for an executive producer. And he very kindly took me under his wing and taught me everything he knew about producing. And he was amazingly talented. And ultimately, that is how I learned to produce. Wow. So you, you had a very humbling experience ending oh. up, obviously, back at your parents, which I'm probably felt. I'm sure it probably felt like some type of failure to you at the time. Uh, massive, yeah. massive yeah. failure. Probably like some shame and yeah, just regret. You probably feel like you made some bad choices. Loser. And- That's what I felt like. 
That's what was wow. going. But that was the tape in my head. Oh my God, you're such a loser. And you know, it, it, you know, I had always been kind of propped up as one of the ones in the greater family that had so much promise. I was creative. I was always on the honor roll. It's like she's going to do big things. And I, instead of doing big things, I'm back at 27 years old, broke, and living in my parents' basement. So, so that it was, that was a very, it was a very dark time for me. And, and, you know, and, until I got, you know, it's almost like, you know, I was like, what is it I want to do? What is the, the marriage between my, my ability to, to vision things, my executional skills. And it turned out, I literally drew it right out of the ethers, that opportunity to produce and to learn how to produce. And, you know, when I was doing that, I was, I, I, it was like, okay, I'm super close now. This is, I'm supposed to be organizing things and envisioning them. It's creative. It's, you know, it, it, it fulfills a lot of things for me. And, um, so I did that for six years and then I had another moment. I don't care about hairspray. I don't care about shampoo. I'm not interested in working these kinds of hours and putting my heart and soul into this kind of content. So I quit again. And, you know, and mom and dad are like, you're quitting again. And I'm like, I'm just not happy. I don't like it. Mm -mm, this isn't the thing. And uh, so once again, starting over. And you started over. Because you felt like your life was not aligned with what you wanted to do anymore, like where you wanted to be. Yeah. Again, be. misery was my compass. I was like, oh, having trouble getting out of bed, having trouble getting excited about this work. I don't feel like it matters. And I just, this isn't, this isn't the last stop on the road for me. I, this just doesn't feel right. And uh Yeah. And so once again, I'm trying to think, what, how old was I then? I was probably 34. So by 34, everybody else is in their, in their adult roles, right? They're married, they're having kids, they're in the career that, you know, they've, they've worked on. So, you know, the, the, the deadly practice of comparison, you know, mm -hmm. every time I did it, I, I looked like the one who didn't have it together. So then this hits you even harder at 34 yeah. because now you have success, quote unquote, to be compared to peers, yeah. to be compared to people you went to high school with, Very that you graduated much. college with. And, and so now it's even darker for you, the comparison than, than it was at say 27, because oh, at 27, time. most people are still trying to quote unquote, figure it out. Oh, big time, big time. And, you know, I, again, I, I feel like wow, I just keep, you know, I just keep hitting the wall and everybody else seems so much further along. Their lives are so much more together. It looks like they're living real lives. What am I doing? And it was, you know, again, I was sitting there going, am I ever going to figure this out? And, and once again, because I couldn't continue to, for I said I was going to freelance produce. That was going to be my answer to, to, to soothe my soul. And I would go find better brands to produce commercials for. But freelancing is its own special skill. 
because when you freelance, you also have to drum up the business. You have to drum up the work. You have to go get the assignments. And I wasn't very good at that. You know, like endlessly calling people who don't call you back is really what that, that looks like. And so, so there I am, I'm probably 34 and I am broke again. So I'm behind on my rent. I'm broke again. Um, you know, probably borrowed some money from my dad. Um, you know, and, and in fact, at one point it got, and, and not a lot, cause I didn't let on how bad it was, but I, I Nancy, my podcast co-host, my great friend of 30 years remembers dropping off casseroles like, Hey, I have an extra casserole. And I'd be like, what? You had an extra casserole? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to go ahead and leave this with you. Well, she was worried I didn't have money for food. I remember listening to that. Yeah. Uh, her tell that story and yeah. she was just so concerned about you. Yeah. So she was just doubling and up, doubling up. She would be making the, yeah. the casserole for her family yeah. and she would make an extra one. Yeah. And then obviously to save face and protect you, she's just like, oh yeah, this is just extra. That's right. You know, Oh man, what a great friend. I know. What a great great friend. friend. You know, and I had a lot of them, you know, friends that would be like, Hey, come out Friday night. No, I'm not going to come out. And they knew that I wasn't coming out because I didn't have money. You know, I didn't, I didn't have money. Hey, no, my treat tonight. Oh, I don't know. No, no, please. I mean, I had, I had a lot of friends who really rallied through that time, but you know, it was embarrassing. You know, it was embarrassing. It felt, it felt very shameful not to have my act together by that time. Now I see it much differently. Believe me, I see it completely differently, but at the time it was, it was shameful. Well, from what I know about you, you used those emotions to fuel you, even though they were, we'll just say negative or darker emotions, you still fueled them to push you uh, into the life that you, you wanted. Well, here, here's what I can see. I was not willing to settle for less than my dream. I wasn't exactly sure what my dream was, but I knew I wanted meaning. I wanted abundance. I wanted significance. I wanted it to be creative. I wanted what I did to matter. And I was not willing to settle for less than that. As painful as as that was, I was not willing to settle for less than that. So you think about starting over again, at 27, starting, and, and, and you've, you've gone down a road. I mean, I'd been in retail for, for years. You've gone down a road and saying, nope, I'm done. Now you got to start over again. You start over again. You go, nope, I'm done six years later. You start over again. I really wasn't willing to settle until I knew I was inside, in the lane, at least in the wide lane of my dream. What happened next? Well, a- along the way, somewhere in those years, I had sent my my reel of commercials, which was a VHS tape back in the day, if people still know what those are, and my resume. I'd sent it to this show, this this television show that was being produced in Chicago, and it was getting a lot of national attention. It was by the time I sent my my resume, and it was the number one show in in America. It was the Oprah Winfrey Show. And I had gotten a message back, hey, we, we, on my answering machine, thank you so much for applying. I'm sorry, you're not what we're looking for. And I kind of skulked away with my tail between my legs like, okay. 
uh, I shouldn't have even tried. Television is very different than television commercials. They're like two completely different disciplines. They're two completely different, um, you know, businesses, um, industries. So um, you wouldn't necessarily just jump back and forth between the two. So I kind of was like, I was disappointed, but I wasn't surprised. So, you know, I, I, I soldiered on and I'd do some freelance. I did, you know, I'd shoot some Six Flags commercials or things like that. And I'd make enough money to just kind of catch up. And um, finally, I had got a huge interview at a big agency in Chicago. And it was going to be like big money, big job, big clients. And I thought, well, you know, if it's now I'm condensing myself. Well, if it's better clients, I'm going to really enjoy the work more. And I certainly would like a great paycheck. And okay, okay, this is going to be great. And I went into the interview. Uh, the guy acted wowed. He was like, you are exact. He, he almost hired me right in the room. You're exactly what I'm looking for. You'll be a perfect addition to the team. I'm going to pay you a ton of money. Uh, you know, our benefits are, you know, world-class, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, you know, go home. I'm going to call you in a few days and I'll tell you when you're going to start. I mean, I, I walked out of there like, oh my God, my life is saved. I have been spared. My life is saved. I celebrated uh, Friday night with all my friends, popping the champagne, so happy that I'm finally, I finally am going to be, I'm going to be okay because things had gotten pretty dark. And, um, you know, of course, not only does he not call me, I don't hear from him. He doesn't return my calls. By the end of the week, I get a, a letter from the HR department saying, Thank you for applying. We have no positions at this time. Damn. So now I literally, I'm on the couch. My hair is in a ponytail, probably not washed for a week. I'm as depressed as I've ever been. And I'm just like, all right, I don't know what I'm supposed to do then. And, you know, I, I guess I could feel a little bit of letting go. I don't have the answers. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I thought it was this. It's not that. So, okay, well, I don't know what to do now. And I felt I was really in a place of, of powerless. You know, I felt very powerless. And I felt like, well, that's it. I, I, you know, I, I just don't know. And I, I finally ultimately pulled myself together. I left the house probably to go run to McDonald's or something and get food. And I came back and, and there there was a message on my answering machine and I think I waited a day to listen to it. And it was, Hey, this is so-and-so at the Oprah Winfrey show. We were cleaning out a closet and we found your resume and your reel. Will you come on in and freelance for us? And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. It was like, whatever the timing wasn't right. The timing, whatever the universal forces, the timing wasn't right. When the timing was right, and I was at my lowest point of surrender, the the call came, and um, in I went, and uh, Harriet Seitler, Highland Park, Illinois, um, she was the new head of creative services, and she hired me as a promo producer, which in that that ecosystem was like an entry-level position. That's how I remember it. It was very, like, very junior. 
And, you know, I'm, I was one of the oldest people in the company. There was probably five people older than me. I was 35 years old, starting over again, but this time at the Oprah Winfrey Show. How long had the Oprah Winfrey Show been on at this point? I, and think, then it, also I think it was the, season 10. Season 10. Okay. And then the content that they found from you, the resume and the reel, was yeah. that the original content that they said no to? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was the old resume and the old reel that got stacked up in a closet somewhere. So, so, so a lot of time had passed between when I had applied and when they called. I find that so interesting. Isn't that interesting? Of, of everything that you that I've learned about you, I find that piece of this so interesting. Yeah, because someone looked at it and said, "Nope, not good enough." Yeah, and then another person looked at it and said, "Nope." perfect. Yeah. We need you. Yeah. Come on. That's exactly right. It like, it gives me the chills to even think about that, to know that it was the same piece of content. It was the same piece of content, my same commercials, but the new person, Harriet, was from a different, had a different point of view, a different way of thinking. And she wanted to bring in somebody who had more advertising experience, a more filmic um, skill as opposed to, you know, putting TV promos together, which you might learn how to do at a TV station. Um, so she had, she wanted something different and what, what she wanted was on my, was, was, was the experience I had, but, uh, you know, listen, you could knock me over with a feather. I mean, that no to that big ad job from that guy who almost hired me almost took me out. That, that no, I, I almost took me out. And to think after that no, that almost took me out, what was waiting was the most unbelievable turn of events in my life. Nothing like that had ever, I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was like, it was like you told me I, I won $500 million in a lottery. Like, how did this happen? Oh my God, I can't believe it. And you know, the, the the first day I walked in the door, I'm like, "This is it. I'm absolutely supposed to be here. This is what I, this is what I'm supposed to be doing." What year was this that you started at the at the Oprah Winfrey Show? That was 1995. Yeah. So we shut. Okay. We, we, we stopped the show. The last episode aired 25 years in, in, in 2011. So, yeah. So I was there for a good 15 years of the show. Yeah. So what happened with your role and your involvement in the show throughout that 15 years? Like walk us through kind of. Well, I was you a promo producer for a long time. I mean, I kept getting more responsibility, but I think I was a promo producer for eight of those years. What and, does that mean? Um, like doing the promos, the look, the 30 second commercials and the little today on the Oprah show, bum, 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 da, 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 Janet Jackson, so you, Oprah Winfrey. You put those together? Like yeah. you were the one chopping those up or were you overseeing the people? I, who were well, I, I'd work with an editor. So I would write a script. 
I would, I would review the content. I'd watch the show. I would write a script. I would kind of put all the little sound bites, the little scenes together. I'd sit with an editor. We'd pick the music. We would, you know, edit the spot together. And then, then it would air the next day. It was quick turnaround. Was it high stressful? Yeah, I probably made way too much of it at the time, but I thought it was very high stressful. Little did I know once I was producing shows. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, here's what was stressful. You know, it, it felt like th there's that phrase that it's not brain surgery, but it felt like brain surgery to us. You know, we, we knew there were millions of people around the world depending on us. And, you know, there and Oprah was depending on us to give our best. So there definitely was a high level of um, accountability we held ourselves to. Plus, the thing with doing any type of creative job uh, is there's a undermining level of uh, perfectionism that exists where you're expecting everything to just be perfect. And I'm sure with video production, you're wanting, you know, the color grading perfect, the perfect sound bite. You want the perfect J-hook, the perfect cut. Like you just want it to be so perfect and so enticing. Did you ever battle that where something was, you know, like the perfectionism thing that a lot of artists go through? Yeah. I mean, that that's part of my nature, <laughs> you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm a recovering maybe perfectionist. You know, um, I like things, I like things at a very, very high level and, you know, expecting that consistently from myself is, that's an interesting, it, it's an interesting thing to kind of ultimately start to take a look at and, and, and ratchet that down a little bit because there, there is some parts of perfectionism that, um, can, stand in the way of your ability to be fully and completely happy. I hear you. I hear you. And I totally understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're, you're worried more about it's like, it's like you're so worried about the minutia being right. You're missing the big picture, which is the full and complete heartbeat of your own life. And, and that always is, you know, there's a, there's a delicate dance that needs to happen there. And you know, you've got that right when you feel good, when you feel good, when you feel optimistic, when, when, when it's easy to choose to be happy, when it's easy to choose a compliment rather than a complaint, you know, you're, you're circling around a, a, a good mix. Were there any incidents during this time period, the eight to 10 years that you know, you were a producer there uh, in that first role because I, you, you went to another role and you got more responsibility later on, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in that, like that first half of your tenure there, uh, were there any incidents that you would say defined like that first, you know, eight to 10 years or so? Hmm. Any pieces of media, uh, maybe any guests or any promotions, just anything, even outside of the job, but just anything in your life that really defined your life at that moment? Well, I mean, oh gosh, uh, you know, the thing I would most accurately tell you is my life was being catapulted and up-leveled so completely that there was so much meaning 
and so much creativity and so much opportunity to learn and grow. And, um, you know, and, and obviously, you know, from, from, I'm, I've told you my story leading up to that, that was 14 years of what, what felt like mistake, failure, wrong way, wrong direction. And you can only imagine in my, in my expansive circle of people who had always known me and, and who had been so worried about me, that is an epic change. <laughs> that is a huge change. So it's like, I'm not only dealing with my own feelings about like of, of, of real joy, real joy and real happiness, but there's also this, the reaction to me is completely different. Like now all of a sudden I'm the most smartest girl anybody's ever met and the most talented person that they've ever met. And so you're like, well, I was the same person before this. Um, it's just an interesting thing to contend with. Your narrative changed because you were a person with ideas, but then you couldn't stick with anything. You're a quitter. You're a failure. You're, they're labeling you all these ways. And then your narrative changes, even though you didn't really change. It's just the narrative changes because yeah. now, oh, you're successful. You're on yes. the show ever. And yes. did you get a lot of, hey, help me, help me with this, uh, do this for me? Whereas before when you were struggling, that wasn't there. Did you did you find yourself getting more, you know, of the help me kind of talks? Uh, let me think about that. I think I think maybe some of the help me maybe came a little later, like, the, the, the more responsibility, the bigger my jobs were um, at Harpo, that more of that kind of thing started to happen, I guess. Um, and, you know, the more financially successful you become, you know, you can sometimes, like my, my greatest joy in becoming more financially successful was being able to share it, being able to pay for stuff and let's go do this and I got it and let me help you with this. That was the great joy of my life. You know, but for for people who, and then there's a different sort of people who aren't just like 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 joyful and appreciative to share it with you, but who now look at you like a bank. You know, mm. and um, you know why should you have the? You know, I want some. You know, there's a little bit of that going on too. So there there's all kinds of things in in the, in the so-called worldly success you have to start to navigate that I certainly did not have to navigate when I was broke and and depressed. Right. The only thing you were trying to navigate was survival and just getting, getting up out of those bad feelings and, and getting right. into these feelings. That's right. So what was the, the latter half of your career like uh, working on the show? And, and then what happened yeah. when it ended for you? Well, it was really a dream. It was a dream. I, I was promoted to the book club producer. So that was the first time I was actually really producing shows. And then I got bumped up to be a show supervisor, um, um, a writing supervisor. So I worked on all the scripts for all the shows. And and then really shockingly, um, uh, one day I got promoted to executive producer, um, which... I never imagined, I never saw that coming, nor did most people. And then I was in that chair, the executive producer chair for the last five years of the show. For the people who don't understand where the 
the uh, I guess hierarchy of an ex executive producer lays. Where is the hierarchy of executive producer throughout the show? Well, the executive producer runs the show, runs the runs the 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 development of the ideas, the production of the ideas, the execution. Uh, when the show's taping, you are literally in the control room with a headset on, working with the the crew to to and the producers to to get that show taped, um, to to pull it off. Um, you're you're really overseeing all the aspects of what it takes to to, to produce and air a television show and. When you're doing 150 episodes a year, that is a bucketful of responsibility. You know, um, you know what was really great for me is the show was established. There, there had been, it, you know, it had been built by some of the smartest and most talented young producers ever, and there had been fabulous executive producers. Um, I think three of them before me, who were <coughs> amazing. And very talented and the team by that time the team there there was really a well-oiled machine of people who had years of experience who are at the top of their game and even so it was like taking the controls of a 747 and not really not ever having flown a plane it was real hard it was real hard yeah. when you told me you got that role i instantly was like wow that sounds hard <laughs> like, oh, it was, it was hard. Yeah. I, I, you know, I lost some hair over that. I'd be like, oh, there's another hair coming out. Um, that was that was, you know, the 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 pressure of it and the the internal pressure, you know, to deliver in, you know, and and to support the team and to to be there for the team and to have Oprah's back. That was, whew, that was it was like the hardest job you'll ever love. You know, who, who, who's what saying was that? Was that the army? The hardest job you'll ever love. That's what it was. <laughs> what what was like your interaction at this point when you're executive producer? What was your interaction like with Oprah? Well, there was a whole reality show about that called season 25, Oprah Behind the Scenes, where we had 30 episodes. Um, I think you can I think you can still find it on YouTube. Um, YouTube okay. Yeah, it was it was a big reality series. So you can see that the producers and I met with Oprah every day in her office. Um, she would meet with the producers before she went down to, you know, to tape the show. Um, she, you know, Oprah is very hands-on, very involved up into the week, you know, late hours of the night. She would be reviewing content for the next day, the next week, two months from now. Um, and, and very, very involved and, and always approving things. So she was very invested and it would make sense for her because she was obviously the, the face of the engine, you know, I, there's so many hands working on this, but she was the face of it. So for it to work, it seems like she would have to be completely uh, involved. Well, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and it was her life's mission. So she, she would not have had it any other way. And now do you, you still have a relationship with her now? Oh, uh, Oprah will be in my DNA for the rest of my life. I haven't I haven't spoken to her in quite a while, but she will be in my DNA forever. Her little voice will be right in my head. I love it. Is there anyone else from the show that you met that you still maintain connections with? That you yeah, talk to? I have a couple of real good friends that I'll have forever. Um, and 
who were like in, in, in the, in the early days, in the early days in the fires with me. Hmm. This feels like a beautiful experience. It was a beautiful experience. It was like people came together, um, you know, with Oprah for a once in a lifetime ride. And, and, and other than, you know, a rare few, most people stayed, you know, for, you know, till the end. And then everybody's gone off into their own lives to do their own thing. Wow. And see, so that part of you working with Oprah, I mean, that was one of your careers. You've used that experience to catapult a bunch of other careers since then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, for, here's the truth. When, when, so, so I, I, I worked in that, you know, I was the president of Harper Studios. I was the president of OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, that, that had launched and, and hit a few stumbles. And so Oprah had asked, um, uh, Eric Logan and I to, to take that on as co-presidents. And, uh, so I was back and forth between LA and Chicago every other week for about, oh, three years, four years. And then I moved out to LA, uh, full time. And, um, you know, a cable business is very different from what we didn't really know what we were doing. We really got a lot of mentoring from the discovery channel and, you know, once that got turned around and it, it, it wasn't good, it was going to ultimately, uh, be profitable and successful. You know, it felt like, uh, like, whew, all right. So glad time, time for less stress in my life. And, uh, but you know, and, and, and it, and it, and it spearheaded, so much reckoning, so much thought, you know, uh, by, by the time I, I, I said my goodbyes and, and went home and sat within, in a deep reckoning, what became clear was that I hadn't managed my stress very well. I haven't, I hadn't like really been a, a, a trustworthy steward of my own well being, And that's what the last four years have been. And so everything that I've built since then, the podcast, the Sherry and Nancy show, our digital platform, thepillarlife.com, the book that um, I published last year, a memoir called The Beautiful No, all those things are really authentically from the experience of that I finally manifested my dream come true career. And then at 56, what I realized was my epiphany was that it was time to manifest a dream come true life. Mm. Damn. What I love about what you're saying is that you're allowing a lot of things to just flow and you're learning from everything that you're going through. Even when we go back to, you know, when you're leaving Iowa, you're intuitive and you're very in tune with what's happening. And you're very, you know, your book is called The Beautiful No you were, you had already had that energy within you when you were saying, Hey, no, this is not for me. Right. No, I can't take this. No, I can't take that. And then the rejection situation when, you know, the guy was like, Nope, we can't take you. Oprah telling you no. And then, you know, you finally get in that role. And then you telling yourself, you know what? Nope. I'm done with this. I put, you know, my 15, 20 years in, I'm done now. It's time for me. It sounds like one of the things that I, I constantly talk about with uh, my audience here on the podcast is just setting healthy boundaries. And this phase of your life is you 
um, setting healthy boundaries and just really putting yourself first. I remember I was listening to uh, one of your episodes. If you can't tell, I, I listen. I do listen <laughs> to your podcast. Uh, you had an episode where you were, I think you were on a detox. This may have been January. At the, January, yeah. And you had, um, you know, no grains, no caffeine, no nightshades. And you were talking about that you were done with feeling challenged in your, your health and wellness. Yeah. Um, health is something that is super important to me. It's something I really, really care about. So I would love if you could just speak to that, um, why you were doing the detox and kind of just give us, you know, give us a little info on, on that part of your journey. Well, I mean, for anybody, here's, there's two different types of people, as far as I can see people for whom, uh, taking care of their bodies, their physicality, their health is, is just not a non-negotiable breeze. It's just who they are. They, they don't think about it. They, you know, they just go about their business. They wouldn't miss a workout for anything. They, you know, really take that moderate, moderate diet, moderate drinking. Uh, they're, they're just, there's moderation in all things. And, and they're just really, they just really key in on it. And then there's people like me. The second group, where everything's a challenge, where it's a story. It's like, why can't I? It's, you know, you're always challenged with weight. It's going up and down. You're either on the program or you're off. You're either, you know, firing on all cylinders or you're doing nothing. And so in this new day, in this new day, and that's what I was talking about on January, in January on the podcast, that, you know, it's just time for it to be easier. There, there's nobody else's program or plan that that's going to be right for me unless I must create my own plan. I am my own coach with a capital C. I am my own trainer with a capital T. What is it? What are the plan? What is the plan, the recipe that I need to fashion for total health and wellness for myself? And so, and, and it isn't a big scream from the mountaintop. It's a real subtle thing like another glass of water. You know, maybe, you know, uh, a couple days, you know, having a glass of wine a couple days and not seven in a row because we're all trapped like rats in our houses. Um, um, you know, they're the little decisions, you know, making sure you have your meditation and not skipping it because, you know, you'd rather, you know, dig through Instagram, you know, for, for 20 minutes. It's really making those little decisions over and over again. And, you know, um, Sylvester, what people say to me all the time, what would you say to your younger self? And here's what I would say. Get that piece of the puzzle right. Get your meditation down. Get your yoga mm -hmm. down or your, your move. Get, get that foundational piece down. And the rest of your life is going to be so much easier. It's so true when you're in your twenties or thirties, forties, and you're still trying to figure it out. But, you know, a lot of that, and I don't know if you know this, uh, oh no, you do know this. I'm a, I'm a new parent. Yeah. And <laughs> one of the things that I'm constantly thinking about is, you know, I don't want my son to have to just recover from dad, not being there, mom, not being there, us fighting, us arguing, or, you know, the feelings that me and you both talked about are feeling where we can't express ourselves. Like, I don't want him to have to recover from things of that nature. Right. Um, like what you just said, like get that piece of the puzzle right. 
I just I want to I want to be able to give him that as a gift. As a gift. Well, and of, you know, and you really give it by demonstrating it. You know, and and that really is at the end of the day, that is what we can do. It's what what can we do right now, right in these times, right now, when there's so much fear and there's so anxiety, so much anxiety. It's to manage our own, to manage our own, and to you know, and to remember to to remember that. This will come to an end. There's going to be a new day. It's going to be a different day, but it's going to have all kinds of new opportunities by, by, by demonstrating happiness and hope and possibility and potential and the fact that you never lose faith that life is good and will continue to be good and we're all going to be okay. That's your gift. That's your gift to your kid. That's your gift to the people in your life. That's your offering to the world. Sherry Salada, thank you so much for your time today. Um, One of the reasons I needed you on here is because you are an inspirational person to me, but you're authentic. Your your game isn't copied from somebody else. You're not trying to be anybody else. It's your story. It's your words. And you're very honest and vulnerable. And I respect that. The Beautiful No. Where can people read your book, The Beautiful No? Oh, it's in all the bookstores. It's all in the bookstores. It's 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 an Amazon, Barnes and Noble, the independent bookstores. Um, yeah, I was going back on tour, but um, you know, I'll, I'll I'll wait when it's safe to travel again. I'll be out on the road again doing talks um, because meeting the people is my favorite thing. And um, it's it's this book has been an amazing experience. I've had so much fun with it. And also your podcast, where can people connect with you on your podcast? Um, Wherever you listen to podcasts, look up the Sherry and Nancy show, Sherry with one R, the Sherry and Nancy show. Um, We have, we have, we're we're having so much fun with it. And it's really, we, we are committed to the uplifting conversation. 100%. The podcast is nothing but positive energy. Uh, It's very honest. I I listened to a couple. I saw you guys just had uh, Jack Canfield on. Yeah. Um, And I listened to the one that you were talking about, Great Girlfriends, which I think is really, really positive because, you know, we started talking, we started talking about friendship and then it's just something I believe in. Just friendship is something I believe in. And, you know, when I go out to brunch, obviously not right now, but when I go out to brunch, I'll see a group of like 20 women walk in. It's like, I talk to my guys. I'm like, dude, you see this? Like, that's what we need to be doing as guys. And I have a, I have a good group of guys that will go out, you know, together, but I have to convince them. I'm like, look, come on, this is what we need to do. And I just love seeing that when you see a group of 20, 30 people just getting together to eat and just laugh and just coordinating it. And it's not even, you know, Super Bowl Sunday or a holiday. It's just a regular Sunday. No, it's an, you know, yeah, it's, a, it. it's an honoring of the energy of that relationship. And in fact, the great girlfriends, Sybil and Brandis, um, Sybil gave me like one of the most I asked her to define what makes a great girlfriend, and it really is for her someone who supports your growth. So think about that. Not someone who's trying to drag you back into the pit of complaining, blaming despair, someone who supports your growth. And I think that's very true. I think she's given me the best definition I've ever heard, and I'm all on board with that. I support it. I support it. Well, I hope everyone checks out your work um, over at the podcast, as well as your book, The Beautiful No. Uh, It's a book that I personally own. I ordered mine from Amazon. 
and I'm a subscriber. I'm a fan of your podcast. I do want to get you get you back on in a few months so we yeah. can talk about your future endeavors. I know you have some things cooking, and once you get everything rolling, I want to want to bring you back on so we can uh, talk about your future endeavors. Sylvester, thank you so much. Congratulations on your new daddy ship. And I really look forward to talking. You're, you're, you're one of my favorite new friends, and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you for coming on the Free Your Energy Podcast. Thank you.